Well, good morning, Elevation Church. Y'all are bright and shiny today. That was good. Some people got their, got their coffee in them. I like that. Y'all, oh, I know what it is. We got donuts this morning. Y'all got sugared up, didn't you? Good. All right. I can go fast today. That's good. All right. Hey, you know what? I am glad to see all of you here. Um, it's a beautiful day outside. I know there was a lot of stuff competing for your attention today, and I'm glad that you got up this morning and made a decision to follow God's leading and come here, because I don't believe you're here by accident. I believe you're here with God's purpose. He has specific intent for you being here today. There's something He has to say to you. He's going to use me or somebody else, maybe the music, I don't know, but it's Him that's speaking. And my prayer as I worshiped with you guys just right over here in the wings and I was just singing along and then I just stopped and started praying and my prayer was this, that you would leave here this morning not impressed by the music and the worship, though I think we have a phenomenal worship team, that you would leave here this morning impressed not by the hospitality and the coffee and the donuts and the warmth of, of the people that are Elevation Church, all of you, that you wouldn't leave here impressed with me which I don't think we're in any danger of, but that you wouldn't leave here impressed with what I say, but that you would leave here today impressed with God. That you would leave here impressed with God because God is great and He is awesome and He loves you so much that when He knit you together in your mother's womb and put you here, He did it with purpose. And He brought you here today with specific intent. And so my prayer is that you would get that today and that you would take that home and you would be impressed by Him. So we're starting a new series today. We're starting a series in the book of Acts. A series called Lessons from the Early Church. Now some of you are smart enough to read between the lines and know that we're talking about history. And you're choking right now because you hated history in school. Memorizing dates. Memorizing little historical facts, dealing with all of the, the stuff that happened in the past. Why do we have to learn about history? I hate history. I wasn't one of those guys. I loved history. I liked English and, and writing, and I liked history, and I hated science and math. And so when we do those kinds of things, it's stressful for me. Maybe it's stressful for you this morning that we're going to talk about church history and the early church, the first century church, and what they did and why they did it and how they did it. Hold on. You've probably heard this before, but let me, let me repeat something for you. There's a reason that we study history. There's a really good reason that we study history. I've heard it said in this trite phrase, most of you have heard it something like this. It says, if you don't learn from history, if you fail to learn from history, then you're doomed to repeat it. Right? Has anybody ever heard something along that line? Most of you, yes, nods, yes, a couple of people awake, yes. Okay, so if we don't, learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. I don't know about y'all, but that just sounds like not a great reason to... I mean, that's just negative. It sounds like everything from history is bad, right? Now, I'll grant you, we've got some bad history in our world. People have messed up. I mean, we've got history with, with wars and destruction and needless death. We've got history where one nation hates another or one race hates another, or one religion hates another. And we've got a lot of bad history, crime, and, and just all the, the terrible stuff in history. And yes, if we don't learn that stuff and learn from that stuff, then we may very well be doomed to repeat it. But not 
everything in history is negative. Not everything in history is bad. And if we focus on the good things, the things that we should repeat, right? The things that we should duplicate, then maybe history will come alive and be a little bit more fun, a little bit more digestible, a little bit more applicable to your life and to mine and to the life of our church. And so that's my my hope in this series is that God will help us see not just what not to do, but way more I want us to see from the early church, in the early church, what we are to do as individual believers in Christ and collectively as the local church and even as the global church, the church collective. So I want us to see in this history that there are some things that we should repeat. And I want us to start learning how to repeat those things that we see done well in the first century church. Primary source of this, as I said a moment ago, of this series is going to be the book of Acts. Now, I don't know if many of you guys have opened the book of Acts and read it before. It's a pretty cool book. I mean, you know, there's 66 books in here. They're all pretty cool. I, all the time I say, one of my favorite books or my favorite book. And I'm like, yeah, that can't be my favorite book because I got this other favorite book and this other favorite book. But there, Acts is a really intriguing book of the Bible. There's a lot of great information in here. Luke is the author of Acts. We just wrapped up our Red Ink series. Uh, I spent like four months talking about all of the things that Jesus said. Well, I can't say all of the things. We didn't even come close. But we talked for four months about the things that Jesus said, and we wrapped that up in the Gospel of Luke. And we got from the Gospel of Luke, or got at the end of the Gospel of Luke, the ascension of Jesus. So we had the death, the burial, the resurrection, 40 days of teaching, and then he ascended into heaven. And now we're starting in the book of Acts. We're going to see what the first century church did right after that, according to Luke, as he recorded these things. So in a very real way, Acts is a continuation of the Gospels and a continuation of the Gospel according to the last Gospel that we were just in, the Gospel of Luke. The book of of Acts was written um, over a period from 30 A.D., around Jesus' crucifixion shortly thereafter, around 30 to 35 A.D., uh, through about 62 to 67 A.D. So a period of maybe 30 to 35 years are covered in this book of Acts, 28 chapters that Luke recorded. And primarily Luke wrote about the spread of the gospel. Primarily what we're going to be seeing as we go through this book of Acts is how the gospel went from a handful of people in Jerusalem around the globe, around the world. We're going to see that beginning of the spread of the church and the spread of the gospel of Jesus. I hope that as we go through this and discover what God has for us, that we, Elevation Church, you, will learn what the church is and how the church acts. Because I think we, right now, us, are very similar to the early church, the first century church. It was a church in its infancy. We're a little over two years old here. We're a church in our infancy. We're a handful of people just getting started. If you think this is is Elevation Church's future, it's not. It's not. This is not what God has for us. It's what He has for us right now. And I believe He's led us here today in the book of Acts to learn where He's taking us and how we're going to get there. 
So let's get started with this. Let's open up your Bibles, if you would, to Acts, the book of Acts. We're going to read the first 11 verses today. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Here we go. Again, this is Luke writing, and he says, In my former book, Theophilus, now Theophilus may have been an actual person. If he is, he makes the all-name team, I'm just saying. He, he, I mean, that's a name right there. More likely, Theophilus is referring to somebody who loves God, because that is what that word actually means in Greek, somebody who loves God. But in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now remember, the Jews have been waiting forever for the Messiah to come and restore the kingdom of Israel. They had been under oppressive rule of foreign governments, foreign kings for 700-something years. And so they're thinking right now, Jesus is about to like drop the bomb on them. He's about to, he's about to do the deal and restore Jerusalem. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I imagine they were shocked right about now. They thought he was going to do it. And he just said to them, they're going to do it. Verse 9. And he said this, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back to you in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. There's a lot that happened in 11 verses right there. I think the biggest thing is Jesus ascended into heaven. We've talked about his ascension recently. And now we're going to talk about what did the disciples do next. And I think it's interesting. As I look at this, as I read through these verses, the first thing the disciples did was nothing. He's gone. They just stood there staring up. And I have to wonder what they were thinking. I think they were probably wondering what to think. Who'd ever seen anything like this before? Jesus, we just spent three years with this guy. We camped with him. We hiked with him. We listened to Him. We fished with Him. We taught with Him. We ate with Him. They had done life with Him, following Him, submitting themselves to Him. They had left their homes and their families 
to follow him. They had left their professions and their possessions to follow him. They had seen him crucified. And they had gone through the horrible, just pain of that loss. Only to have been restored to even a greater joy when he was resurrected. And then poof, he's gone again. I wonder what the disciples were thinking. I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you what I might have been thinking. And maybe what I would have been thinking maybe is what they would have been thinking. My first thought, I believe in that scenario, would be, now what? Now what? What do we do now, Jesus? We, I mean, 45 seconds ago, they had just asked him, you're about to restore Israel, aren't you? And then poof, he's gone? That's what their expectation was. And then the reality was very challenging, to say the least. I think they had to be trying to deal with what now? And I think as they dealt with that, there might have been three questions that popped to their minds. These are three questions I think all the time as I think about Elevation Church and about reaching our community and about where we are and what God wants us to do. These are, these are the, the things I think the disciples might have thought. First thing is, what, what do I do? What what do I need to do? In, in, in Jesus' physical absence now, He's been with us for all this time, now what do I do? And maybe then it was, what do we do? The disciples, the apostles, they're there together. They've been together for a while. So, so it moves from maybe from me to we. What do we need to do? What is it that, that we, God, need to do? And then God, what is it that you're going to do? What do I do? What do we do? And God, what will you do? And as I ponder these questions sometimes, I see that there's really three ways to deal with these questions or the bigger now what question. And these are things that I've had to wrestle with in my own life. And probably some of you have or are. And if you haven't and you aren't, then you will be. And I think these scenarios that, that play out, these possible answers to this question go something like this. I slash we have to do everything. It's all on me. It's my burden to carry. It's my job to do it. God will do nothing and I will do everything. Everything is on me. And while that's a heavy burden to carry, sometimes it's a kind of a boastful, prideful thing. We guys like to get our chest stuck out a little bit. Like, yeah, I did that. I built that business. I did this. I raised my kids. I, I created that. I earned that money. I created this, built that. Whatever. We like to stick our chest out and say, that's right, boys and girls. I did it. All me. That's one scenario. The other scenario, or another scenario, is, hey, you know what? It all depends on God. He's going to do everything. And because God does everything, I ain't got to do nothing. I can sit down, chill out, relax, and watch as God works. I've been guilty of this one too. There's times in my life where I've been like, you know what? It's bigger than me. I can't do it. If it's going to happen, it's going to have to be God. 
and I just kick it into neutral and wait to see what he's going to do. Don't raise your hands, but any of y'all ever been there? Don't tell on yourself now. Right? We just we want to just wait and see what God's going to do. And there's, a, there's whole theologies built around both of these ideas that it all depends on you, that God's going to do nothing, and a theology built around it all depends on God, and you don't have to do anything. He'll just do it all for you. And then I think there's reality. And I think the reality is where the disciples finally got to, and we're going to talk about this in the next little bit, but the reality that I think is this. God will do it through me. Through you. Through us. See, it's a both and. It's not an either or. It's a both and. God doesn't put the whole burden on you. He doesn't take the burden all the way off of you. You have a role in His plan. He's going to work through you and through me and through us to accomplish His will and to make sure that the mission that He has for us, you individually, me, us, this church, for this community, for this nation for this world to make sure that all of that comes together and that it happens those were important decisions these disciples these apostles had to make they were important differentiations they had to draw because the acts of the apostles which is the title of this book the acts of the apostles what they did depended on how they perceived their place in god's plan so let's talk about this, this first possible scenario. This first possible scenario. I do everything. God does nothing. How would the original apostles have dealt with that? Well, in Genesis chapter 11, we find that some people had already tried this approach to life. In Genesis chapter 11, we find a group of people in an area, in a town, a city called Babel, and they're trying to build a tower to make a name for themselves, a tower that would reach all the way to God. They were going to build the Tower of Babel. Some of you are familiar with that Bible story from the Old Testament. This is early on in human history now. They're going to build this thing because it all depends on them. They've got to build their way up to God. If you're not familiar with the story, trust me when I tell you that these early apostles and disciples would have been very familiar because this is part of their Jewish tradition, part of their culture. They would have been taught these scriptures from a very young age. They knew about this. They knew that people had tried this whole, we're going to do it on our own thing before. And by the way, the tower failed. God intervened. He would not let mankind take it all upon himself and try to build his way or earn his way to God. Because God is not passive. He's not a passenger in your life. He's not a spectator in your life. God is active. Think about this. Who is God? God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them, including you. You can't create without being active, without being involved and invested. God's the creator. It just, just knowing that one aspect of Him tells you that He is an involved and an active God, not a passive God, a spectating God. God leads. God directs. God acts. Maybe you believe that today we're too advanced to fall into the trap of trying to do it all on our own. 
I know I've heard people talk about that before. We would never repeat that culturally. We're too advanced. We too much scientific knowledge, too much history. We get it. We would never. But look at our culture. I mean, I talked just a moment ago about how men like to puff their chest out and say, I did this. It's all about me. I, I did this and I did that. Our culture is a, is a culture like that. We like to call ourselves bootstrap Christians sometimes. We, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I saved myself. I don't know how you justify that theology. I don't know how you work that out. But you could talk about things like this. I earned my way into the kingdom of heaven. I was a good Christian. I gave enough money, attended enough services, went on enough mission trips. I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. Me, 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 me. I, 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 I. I earned it. Our culture is not too sophisticated. We're not too advanced. We're dead square in the middle of it. We like to think that we're responsible for everything that we achieve and accomplish. The funny thing is we rarely want to take responsibility for the things that we do that fail. You ever laugh at yourself about that? Not in the moment. It's too hard in the moment. You look back on it though and you're like, wow, I took all the credit when it was good and I gave all the credit away when it was bad. I blamed that on something else, somebody else. It was the president. It was the economy. It was the competition. It was whatever it was, whatever failure, it was somebody else's fault. We are definitely caught up in this culture of thinking that it's all about us. We even have a television network called Do It Yourself, DIY Network, because we're such a DIY culture. It's funny. You know what? The early church saw the flaw in the DIY approach to Christianity, the DIY approach to a relationship with God. The early, early church saw the flaw. Do you? Do you see the flaw? And trying to do life on your own, without God, it's all dependent upon you. He takes none of the responsibility, none of the accountability. He doesn't do any of the work. It's all you. I can't imagine trying to build Elevation Church with it just being dependent upon me and you. I can't imagine if we walked outside into our community back into your neighborhood and mine, back onto your sports teams and mine, back to your schools and mine, and said, it's all dependent upon us. God, you're out of the equation. We can do it. I think we'd be doomed and destined to fail in that approach. Because I don't think we have the capacity on our own to pull that off. Let's talk about scenario number two. God does everything, and we, I, have to do Nothing. Now, I like the sound of this approach. And on the surface, it sounds really holy and spiritual. I mean, it's not about me. It's all about God. I can do nothing. God does everything. Sounds very spiritual. Kind of breaks down under closer examination, though. You see, the disciples didn't go DIY Almost immediately, the disciples slipped into a little bit of this all-about-God mentality. Remember? They're just waiting on Jesus to give them direction or do something. Staring up into the heavens. And I realized they were probably a little dumbfounded by the scenario. But Jesus had spent three years kind of teaching them and training them, preparing them for what comes next. And they were just... Do nothing until the angels appeared 
and kind of shocked them out of it, right? So here we are in this, it all depends on God scenario. We talked about all depends on me. Now it all depends on God. I mean, from their perspective, maybe from your perspective, I mean, Jesus called me. He called the disciples, didn't he? He called them out. Come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus taught them. Jesus trained them. He led them. He instructed them. Jesus had done a lot of the work, if you think about it. Jesus, when they went into these towns and met with the people and preached, who, who, taught, who preached? Jesus preached. Who taught? Jesus taught. Who healed? Jesus healed. Who forgave? Jesus forgave. I mean, even Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Seems that Jesus maybe did have a do-it-all kind of a mentality, a do-it-all plan. And now what do we do next? I mean, even in verse 4, Jesus said, go nowhere, wait. Wait for the gift that my Father has promised. Wait. Go nowhere. Wait. Hmm. I think the disciples almost took Jesus too literally. I mean, they like literally went nowhere. <laughs> and we're waiting until the angels showed up and shook him out of it. But the angels did show up. And they did shake him out of it. And the disciples didn't, as we'll find out over the next many weeks, kick back in their lazy boys, chill out in their homes, go fish, go water ski, go rest. They didn't do that. They moved on to option number three. Option number three, God works through me. God works through me. Aha! Aha! <laughs> he leads, I follow. He directs, I act. This sounds familiar. I think the disciples, maybe shortly after the angels appeared and snapped them out of it, might have flashed back. Not too far back in their own little history. Maybe they flashed back to maybe what's recorded in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, verses up, you guys can find it. Jesus sent the disciples out. 72 of them to go into every town that he was about to go, two by two. Go out, and he told them to go do what he had been teaching them and training them and preparing them and showing them to do. And the disciples, 72 of them, went out two by two. Check my Aggie math, but I think that's 36 pairs. Not that that matters, it just popped into my head. 36 groups of them go out into the countryside. They go out into the towns. They go ahead of Jesus. And they start doing what Jesus told them and taught them and modeled for them. And in verse 17, they returned later with joy. And they said, Dude! I mean, they said Lord. But I would say dude. Even the demons submit to us in your name. 
Flash forward. We're back in Acts. Jesus just ascended. The angels just snapped them out of it. They're asking themselves the now what question. They're weighing, what do I do? What do we do? What does God do? Is it all about me? Is it all about God? And now they're in this scenario, this process of thinking it through logically, and they go, maybe it's like Jesus has been showing us. Maybe it's like Jesus actually has practiced with us. He's prepared us to do things. He has sent us out already. We've gone and done the things. The disciples healed people. The disciples drove demons out of people. They preached the gospel. They did amazing things, things that they could not fathom. They had only seen Jesus do and thought, I'm sure, that only Jesus could do until He sent them to do it. And here the disciples are, not too far forward from that. Jesus is now physically gone it can't be all about Him. Surely it can't be all about them. But they've been there and done that when it comes down to God working through them. Him leading, them following, Him directing, them acting. It must have clicked with them that Jesus' purpose was to fulfill His mission. His purpose for them was to fulfill His mission, to continue the work that He had started. He had spent three years investing in them, discipling them, training them, preparing them, and now He was releasing them out into the ministry to continue the work He had begun. Their personal limitations were no longer important. If you have to do it all yourself, your personal limitations play a big role, don't they? If you have to do everything on your own, your personal limitations are, are, are a great factor in what you can accomplish. Personal limitations, no longer an issue when God is working through them. Even the demons, remember, submitted to the disciples in Jesus' name. They were getting it. Are you getting it? Are you getting it? It's not up to you. And it's not up to me. It's not up to Pastor Nick, Jim, the worship team. It's not up to the big churches in our town. The big churches out of our town. To do the work. It's up to all of us. It's up to you as an individual, and it's up to us as a church, and it's up to all of us united as God's church to take the gospel forward, to carry out the mission that God has called us to, that Jesus has prepared for us and prepared us for. The message has to be shared. The gospel has to spread. We know that right here in our community, in a 2012 survey, Right here, Louisville, Flower Mound, Highland Village, Lake Dallas, Corinth, this area. Two-thirds of those responding to the survey said that they do not have any religious affiliation whatsoever. They're not Christians. They're not uh, Buddhists. They're not Muslims. And we're the buckle on the Bible belt, baby. Dallas, Fort Worth? Are you kidding me? Flower Mound? 
conservative little bedroom community? Two-thirds. The mission is, is it's right in front of us. The call is clear. The model is doable. I mean, if Jesus said we had to do it all ourselves, how many of you are in? I'm out. That's too much work. If God was going to do it all for us, frankly, I'm not sure I'd even be on that. I kind of like doing stuff. I'm not a real stand-on-the-sidelines kind of a guy. But when God says that He will work through me, if I will submit to Him, in spite of me, He will work through me. My personal limitations are no longer a factor if I will submit and follow His example, His leadership, if I will act, He's already acting in your life and in mine. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the Holy Spirit resides inside of you. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that next week and in the weeks after. And that Spirit is ready to act and in fact is already acting, leading, guiding, It's all about us submitting and letting the power of that Spirit direct us in our actions. They got it. We've got to get it. If we don't have it yet, if you don't have it yet, you've got to get it. We have a mission, we have a purpose. There's no greater mission, no higher purpose than the one that God has given us to do His work, to go and share His love. We don't have to do it alone, but God's not going to do it for us. He is ready, willing, and able to do it through us and to do it in us. When we're ready for Him, when we receive that and believe that, we will act. Elevation Church, it's our time to act. It's our time. I said earlier, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. In the case of the first century church, if we today God's church today, the modern church today, Elevation Church right now today, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed not to repeat it. Because what happened in the first century church is one of the most desirable things in history to be repeated. What they did, what they experienced, what God did in them and through them and in spite of them has tremendous impact on the rest of human history. It's our time to learn over the next several weeks what these early Christians did, how they did it, why they did it, to take what we can that meets our culture today, to go out and repeat what history shows us and carry out God's mission and fulfill His purpose in our lives, for our church, and in this community. In Jesus' name, let's pray.